There's another way of using the mind to beat the mind through study. Through studying systems which slowly modify the system you were working in. You keep shifting contexts for reality. Welcome to the Ramdas Here and Now podcast. I'm Jacqueline Dobrinska from Love, Serve, Remember Foundation, and we have a great episode for you today. It's a Dharma talk from 1990 in Houston, Texas, and in it, Ramdas explores how to shift contexts in order to shift consciousness. He teaches about the state known as choiceless awareness and how we can cultivate the witness to curb reactivity which seems like something most of us need these days. So that's it. That's all I'm going to say about it. You can hear the rest of it directly from Ramdas. But before you jump in, just take a minute or two to learn about how to be more involved with uh, Love, Serve, Remember, with the offerings, with the teachings. So a big part of what we do is we provide opportunities for connection and community. Probably many of you know that Ramdas wanted satsang or spiritual community to continue after his passing. And so since February of 2020, we've been offering these online gatherings and people love them. They offer hope and perspective. And usually somebody ends up in like tears of relief because they found a place to talk about these things that they typically can't talk about with other people. Just recently, we changed the format, uh, making it a place for people to come with your curiosities and inspiration and take-homes from these podcasts. So in addition to talking about the podcast, now Raghu is starting to join us. So instead of offering his intros, we have a Q&A session um, where it's very interactive and really quite lovely. Um, we also do some practice together. So we hope that you'll come and join and help co-create and grow this community and Ramdas's legacy. You can sign up by going to ramdas.org slash fellowship. The other main thing we do at Love, Serve, Remember Foundation is provide content. Um, much of it is free. So Be Here Now Network, which is connected, um, offers all this incredible free content. But we live in this culture where we somehow have to support all that. So we do a fundraiser each year. Um, this year, it includes a raffle with some spots to join the retreat in Maui in December. So check it out. You can find out more by signing up at BeHereNowNetwork.com and you'll get additional information soon. Another piece of content that is coming out is the book by Parvati Marcus, Whispers in the Heart. It has lots and lots of great stories. And one of the things I love about it is the foreword by Pete Holmes, where he talks about spiritual FOMO, that fear of missing out. And I think many of us can relate, uh, having not met Neem Karoli Baba or even Ramdas now in the flesh, this like sense that we missed something. But this book speaks directly to it because it's story after story after story of people who've had these incredible experiences with Maharaji after he left his body in 1973. So check it out. Please pre-order. It helps with all of the, um, the stuff to get it out in the world. So go to ramdas.org shop and check out Whispers in the Heart. So that's it. 
please take a minute to listen to our sponsor, which helps us be able to offer all of this for free, and then dive into this amazing episode about tilting our minds for new perspectives. I hope you enjoy. Once you understand the metaphysics that we presented this morning, um, then the next step is how do you act as a result of that understanding? And um, as somebody that is, thinks they are somebody that is in illusion attempting to get out of it, which is an illusion, of course, um, you do practices which are themselves illusions. So you've got to understand from the end point, there's nothing to do when nobody's doing anything. From the point you're sitting at, there's something to do and you better damn well do it. And you're in between those places somehow. So you, you keep doing it until you're not doing anything and then there's nothing to do and then it doesn't matter. But at the level where you really think you're somebody and you've tasted that there's something else and you're attempting to extricate yourself from that, there are a variety of ways of doing that. And um, Krishnamurti says any attempt to do that is going to trap you in being somebody doing something so that there's absolutely nothing you can do. Okay. And so don't do anything. And that concludes the weekend. <laughs> so what all the people do is they go and listen to Krishnamurti and they read his books and that is known as doing something. So he becomes a way in spite of himself. And his way of saying there's no way is a way. And that's closest to what we call Zen Buddhism, the, the, the uh, idea there's nothing to do and there's nobody to do it. And so just sit. But don't sit, sit, just sit. <laughs> just sit. You're not sitting to get enlightened, you're just sitting. Because if you're sitting to get enlightened, you're trying. And if you're trying, it won't work. Years ago, I was with Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, and I went to him for some meditation guidance. And he said, Ramdas, you should do a meditation in which you expand outward. He said, let's try it together. And we sat opposite each other, and we looked into each other's eyes, and he said, just expand outward. So after about 20 seconds, he said, Ramdas, are you trying? I said, yes, I'm trying. No, Ramdas, don't try, just expand outwards. And try and try and try again. If at first you don't succeed, try again. That's the culture we grow up in. And so you start out being somebody who tries, and then in the course of trying, you see through your own trying. And then you stop being identified with the trier. So these processes really are concerned, like the process of chanting, of, of Kirtan that Jai's just been leading us in is a process of the heart. It's a process of devotional dualism, relation with the beloved, in which you get more and more intimate with the beloved. And then there are these processes that use the mind to beat the mind, 
because the mind is the problem since who you think you are is what the problem is. That's the prison cell you're in. So you want to use the mind to beat the mind. Now within that, there are a whole variety. That's called jnana yoga. Within that, there are a whole set of techniques. I mean, in the Zen technique of the koan, for example, you are given something to solve for which there is no rational solution. Like I was asked, Ramdas, how you know your Buddha nature from sound of pine tree? Well, um, and any clever answer you give, the Roshi just rings his bell and says, Ah, doctor, I had so much hope for you. Because <laughs> there's no rational way out of the game. Finally, when you give up and say, screw you, Roshi, he says, ah, now you are becoming beginning student of Zen. So there is the technique, which is the, what's known as the steep path of just leaping off your rational mind into the unknown. And sufficient trauma will do that, take you out of your mind, like if you take your car off a cliff. Something in which none of your models of reality work. Like when I met my guru, and he knew stuff about me and my life that there was no possible way that he could know by the ways I knew people knew. And I was a professor of knowing how people knew, and he couldn't know, and he did. And at that moment, my mind tilted. It blew out. It grasped at things, but they were all too wild, and it gave up. It's known as blowing the mind. I mean, he actually blew the circuitry of the mind. And out of that came the moment of awakening. It's anything that takes you out of your habitual thought forms. And so you can use the, the steep path of the Zen koan or the trauma or the irrational, confronting the irrational or the unknowable. There's another way of using the mind to beat the mind through study. Through studying systems which slowly modify the system you were working in. You keep shifting contexts for reality. For example, when I went to India and started to study Hindu and Buddhist philosophy, I was presented with the image, which I've mentioned many times and most of you are probably familiar with, but just reflect on it for a moment. It's just like row, row, row your boat. Life is but a dream. Now you can sing that a thousand times and never hear it, but just once you say life is but a dream, and then you look at your life as a dream. That's a context shift. It's a paradigm shift. You shifted the interpretation of what you were seeing. Is that coming through? Can you hear that? 
Now, the art is that you use one of them to show you how stuck you were in the other. Because any context is only relatively true, and it's partly a lie. Which one is real? Are we a group of people meeting in Houston at a workshop? Are we souls that have taken incarnation and are meeting again to compare notes on the journey? I mean, maybe a dozen of you came in Hondas. Does that make you Honda, Hondas? Or Honda owners? These are all relative realities. There's a, a book called the Bhagavad Gita. In the Bhagavad Gita, as many of you undoubtedly know, Arjuna is a, a young warrior uh, leader of, of the good guys, and he's about to fight the bad guys. And he looks over in the bad guys, and he sees a lot of his friends and his teachers and all, because it's cousins versus cousins. And he says, I'm not going to fight. And he throws down his bow and arrow. And Krishna, who is who you were singing to, is that particular form of God at that particular yuga or time period. Krishna is serving as Arjuna's charioteer in this war. And he says to Arjuna, you really have to fight, but don't get upset because it has nothing to do with what you think you're doing anyway. And Arjuna says, look, I'm not going to fight. Krishna says, I'm doing it all anyway. You're not doing it. You're just playing your part. Now, you can listen to this story thus far metaphorically or actually. It's actually a battle and he's being told to go out and kill the enemy. Or you can hear it metaphorically as... The enemy are all the parts of oneself that one has to slay in order to become one with God. And some of them are one's old friends. Like when Don Juan says in the Castaneda books, you have no family. If you're going to be free, you have no family, no history, no nation, no identity, no, you know, and you say, oh, do I want to give up all that? I had a moment in um, Burma a few years ago where I went for three months of meditation. And at the end of two months, I got a telegram that my stepmother was about to be operated on for cancer. I think I've talked about this, maybe even in Houston. And I got the telegram that said she's going to be operated on in five days. And I, she was taking care of my el elderly father. And when I got this message, it really called me home to help take care of the situation. So I went to my teacher, my meditation master, and I showed him the telegram. And through the translator, he said in Burmese, he said, I don't think you should go. And I was startled. Not go? He said, you're doing very good inner work now. If you leave now, you're right at a critical moment. You could do incredible work. 
He said, if you do the work now, you will be able to help many people get free from suffering. If you rush home now, you'll just help one or two people get free of suffering. But it was my stepmother, it was my father, and it was my karma. And he understood that. And he said, if you were from Burma, I wouldn't let you go home. But you're not from this culture, so you, you go. And it scared me when he presented me with that option of completely having given up all of my history and my family and everything for my spiritual path. In India, the sadhus, they have a funeral ceremony when they decide to become sadhus and they become dead to the family. And it's a, it's a contract in which I've taken the holy life, I'm leaving home and that's it. I'm not part of this family anymore. That's okay. That's within the karmic domain. It's, it's culturally defined. But I'm a Jewish boy from Boston, and when my parents are sick, you go home. You cook soup. You do whatever you do. And I was, it was wonderful that I did just what I did. It was just the right thing to do. I'm, I mean, intuitively, it felt just right. So at any rate, Krishna is saying to Arjuna, you've got to do this thing. You've got to fight even though there are good people on the other side, even there are old familiar things on the other side. And Arjuna says, I won't do it. And Krishna says, look, I'll show you how it is. And then Krishna touches the third eye of Arjuna in the 11th chapter. And Arjuna sees the universe the way it is. He sees another reality. He sees Krishna in his vast forms. And he sees all the armies crushing into Krishna's mouth, hitting against his teeth, just going in. And he realizes that he's just a little teeny, teeny part of a huge, a huge story. Krishna says, think not that you are doing it. Realize this is all being done by me. All you have to do is do your dharma. Do what is appropriate to you in this life. Now that context serves to take you out of the context you're in. It took Arjuna out of the context that he was a warrior in a war. So that technique of using the mind through studying other takes of reality, other paradigms, other metaphors, other ways of looking at what is. Like the image, as the Buddhist story of the image of the, of how many times you've reincarnated, of the mountain six miles long and six miles wide and six miles high, and every hundred years a bird flies over the mountain with a silk scarf in its beak and it runs the scarf over the mountain once every hundred years. In the length of time it would take for the scarf to wear away the mountain. That's how long you've been doing this. Now, what does that do to your sense of, boy, this is life? I mean, you know how many times you've said that? Millions and millions and millions of times. 
You're like those little bugs that are born in the morning and die in the evening, and around noon they say, boy, this is life. You see how the contextual frame just shifts your consciousness? That's a specific spiritual technique. That's part of Jnana Yoga. Now, there's another part of Jnana Yoga that then goes, that combines with what's known as Dhyana Yoga, which is meditation. See, in Dhyana Yoga, there are two components of Dhyana or meditation yoga. Yoga meaning yoke or coming into union with the one. These are techniques, practices. In Dhyana Yoga, you can have concentration, bringing the mind to one point following the breath, walking meditation, whatever, candle flame. Then there is a component of what's called mindfulness, just being aware of what is. Now, in practicing mindful meditation, there are really two stages that at least they are for me. When you are in life and are not awakened and somebody goes, you go, or if they go, you go, you become reactive. You're reactive to things all the time. Stimulus response. It's actually stimulus, concept, reaction to concept, response. And it's built in. To everything you have a response. And you're like a mechanical phenomenon happening. Somebody says, I'm sick, and you say, oh. Like I got so, I uh, a couple of years ago, last year, I had uh, broken my Achilles tendon. So for a whole tour, I was on crutches. And I'd come into a lecture hall, and people would be concerned. And I'd get up here, and I'd say, and I knew exactly what was going to happen because of the, the predictability of the reaction. I'd say to everybody, I broke my Achilles tendon. And you could hear going through the audience, oh. And then I'd say, playing tennis, and they go, oh, and then I'd say, in France, and they go, oh, it's like you deserve it, you know, playing tennis in France, what do you mean doing that, an old, you know, and it was predictable, I could do it every night, and it always worked, I always got the, oh, oh, ah, yeah, now, What one begins to notice is that always present along with all of your thinking mind and senses and reactivity and so on, there is a tiny part of yourself that is not involved at all, that's just noticing. And it's called the witness. Uspensky talks about it in Search of the Miraculous, in the book In Search of the Miraculous. It's a part of the mind that you use to observe the rest of the mind. You witness stuff. So instead of, I'm depressed, it's there's depression. You hear the distinction? The I'm depressed is the part of you that's identifying with the depression. Then there's this other part that's witnessing that whole thing. 
Like here you are sitting here with whatever state you're in. Now just witness it. Like if you're feeling um, curious, instead of being curious, just note curiosity. If you're feeling agitated, instead of being agitated, note agitation. Find the place in you that's just watching the phenomenon. If you're sitting, instead of sitting, note sitting. Find the part of the mind, and often it's just out of 100%, it's 1%, and the other 99 thinks it's all real. Like I've been working with this woman who, who just died this week, and she would, when I'd visit her in the hospital, sometimes the pain would be quite intense. And she would be in great pain. And I'd look into her eyes and I'd say, is there any part of you that isn't in pain? And she'd look and she'd find it. And I'd say, now notice the pain from there. And she'd become quite peaceful. It worked. She would come into the part of her mind that was noticing the rest. She was identifying with the witness rather than with the experiencer of pain. That witness starts out, as I say, as about 1%, and you forget it very quickly. Anything will make you forget it. You decide you're going to do the exercise of cultivating the witness. In the Uspensky book, it describes Uspensky as deciding he's going to be the witness. So he's describing Uspensky's walking down the street. Uspensky is turning into Wienerstrasse. Uspensky's walking down Wienerstrasse. And then he sees that his tobacconist shop, and he remembers he needs pipe tobacco. And about two days later, he remembers he was doing the experiment. It's like, Uspensky's walking down. Oh, I need tobacco. Good morning. How are you? What's happening? You know, and it was gone completely. But when you want to extricate yourself from the, from the reactivity of your own mind, the art is to put something in between the input and the response. And it's only a little teeny thing. And it's just, it's like a ROM. Or it's like a moment of witnessing. Or it's a moment of breath. Or it's a moment of emptiness. It's something you intervene between one thought and the next thought. And then one thought is a reactive thought. So it becomes thought, which could be stimulus coming in, uh, thought, which is reaction going out. But instead of those two being linked, they're broken by this place. So if you ask me a question, you may notice often I just sit for a moment. At that moment, I go empty. It's not like I'm thinking, what will I answer? I'm not thinking. And then I'm trusting that whatever happens next, will I will trust. It'll come out of a deeper truth. When you can cultivate your ability to respond rather than react, that's what you're attempting to do, to learn how to respond rather than react. And that quiet moment, that mindful moment, that witness, when you stand back and just see how things are, you just see how things are. You're not busy reacting to them. You just see how things are. Like I'd watch people walk into her room. She's, she was 41 and she was dying of AIDS. And she had hundreds of friends, and they all kept coming and visiting and family. And I watched people come in, 
and her physical condition was such that they would react. You could feel them wince or feel pain or try to look happy or say something. As you cultivate the witness, which at first, as I say, is 1%, it keeps building until it gets up so that as you start to wince, you see yourself wincing, and the wincing is a device of keeping the suffering at a distance. Pity, for example, is a device for keeping pain at a distance. Oh, isn't that too bad? Is a way of separating myself from it. We have an interesting thing, like if you get a bad tooth, toothache, you'll immediately separate the tooth from you. It's that tooth. The tooth was us until it started to be a nuisance. Then it became that tooth. Yeah. That child. I don't know what we're going to do with that child. <laughs> what do you mean that child? I'm your child. You're that child. We tend to deal with pain and suffering by putting a distance between us and it. And that's a reaction. And that reaction makes everything weird from then on. Everything's off balance after that. The question then is, can you cultivate a part of you which can just look at the universe the way it is without any reaction at all? The feeling you, you react from is your own identification with your somebodyness and therefore your empathy with their somebodyness. Like as this woman was approaching death this week, a blood clot broke off her catheter in her chest and it went into her, the vein that fed her lung and she couldn't stop coughing. She was coughing and gagging and coughing and gagging and it went on for about 20, 30 minutes while I was there. And I could feel myself screaming with empathic pain. You know how when somebody coughs, you get that thing in your throat or when somebody sneezes, you sneeze or they yawn, you want to yawn. And I was just like, ah, we got it. And I watched how this one, which was a new one for me, this immense amount of pain and, uh, and stuff she was going through. She couldn't stop coughing and gagging and coughing and gagging. And I watched myself get caught in that one, get caught in my own identification with that which was choking and therefore my own reactivity to it. And she had asked me to help her stay conscious through the process of death. And therefore, she and I had been organizing the level of the morphine drip and the amount of painkiller that would put, knock her out. And I knew what the critical amount was that would put her out of her consciousness put her into a, a, a drug dazed state. And I couldn't stand her coughing. So I ordered her to give more of it, more painkiller. And she went into that drug dazed state and then she died. Now, there's no right or wrong in that. There's just the phenomena that my empathy for her pain as a separate human being was so strong, I got I lost the balance of seeing the whole thing and the spaciousness and being with her and saying, it's just coughing and choking, and here we are. 
is it wasn't just coughing, it's coughing and choking. Now, I'm giving you an extreme example, and most of you are saying, what is he talking about? Of course, if somebody's coughing and choking. But I've had other moments, like with a woman who had uh, cancer of the... Um, pelvis, pelvic cancer, and she was writhing in pain. And I came to visit her, and she and her doctor had worked out she wanted very little medication, and she was excruciating. She was writhing on the bed. And I sat there, and there was nothing to do. I was not in the role of being able to do anything. So I just sat there, and I meditated on her decaying body. I did a Buddhist meditation. And I got quieter and quieter and deeper and deeper until the whole room turned purple. And I was floating. And all the time, her body in the, in the late afternoon, the was silhouette was writhing in pain. And this writhing body turned to me, and she had been turned away, and she turned and she said, she said, I wouldn't be any place else in the universe but here at this moment. She said, I am perfectly content. And all the time, her body was writhing, but she wasn't writhing. It's the same thing when you go into a dream state or come into normal waking consciousness. When you're in the dream, isn't, isn't the Italian dinner that's not sitting well in your stomach still around? But you're not busy be having indigestion because you're dreaming something else. Once you understand that the play of the mind is such, then you see what your price is, which one grabs you and brings you into this plane of reality and catches you fully. And the art is to be in the world and not of the world, to be both in it and not of it. And when you lose it into this is real, you lost it. And if you lose it into this is not real, you lost it. So you use the witness, which just notices how it is and open to how it is, including the suffering, until you can say, ah, choking. Ah. And the other part of you is screaming. See, what's required, and this is so interesting, and it's so hard to com comprehend. Once you understand where you're going, you can see, see how you're getting there, because it's all process to get you there. You'll see that at one level of reality, because you and I are more than one plane of reality, you are both human and you're more than human, you're divine or you're something, I don't know what to call it, but there's part of you that has a human heart and when you see somebody else in pain, you suffer like hell and it hurts and your heart breaks. And all your reactivity is at that plane where you're guarding that thing. There's another part of you which is just looking at the universe Without the decision, since your little mind doesn't know why it all is the way it is, so you're not sitting judging it. You're just appreciating it. So there's the higher consciousness, the intuitive wisdom that is just looking at the universe as it is, and then there's the heart that's breaking. There was a time when my heart was breaking over incredible suffering that was going on in um, eastern Pakistan when Pakistan split. And I was with my guru, and I was very, very troubled by it. And he said to me, Ramdas, don't you see it's all perfect? I said, no, I don't. He said, don't you see it's all perfect? And yet he would cry over it. Can you imagine that somebody could cry over it and still know that it's perfect? 
that it could all be terrible, and yet you don't sit and say, hey, God, you really screwed up. If I were doing it, I would have done it different, because you don't even know why it's done the way it is. You don't know. You don't know why a child dies young. You don't know. You don't know why one person has this life and one person has that. You don't know. There's a mystery in it. You don't know. So why do you have to judge it if you don't know? So I'm faced with the dilemma of having these two parts of myself. My human heart is doing what it can to relieve your suffering. And my higher wisdom is just watching the whole show. And because that higher wisdom exists, I don't burn out in the lower part of me. Because my life isn't linear. I'm not just somebody relieving your suffering. I'm somebody enjoying the whole process, including my desire to relieve your suffering, including your suffering. It's just stuff happening. It's, it's the unfolding of the universe. It's the, I was just with Thomas Berry, this beautiful, deep ecologist uh, um, father, Catholic father. Incredible man. And he said, he said, the earth and all of us, this is the revelation. This is the revelation. It's not that the book is the revelation. That was the early revelation. The revelation now is this. This is it. Are you celebrating the revelation? How do you celebrate the revelation? Is just what you're experiencing at this moment, if your body is tired or whatever, whatever you're feeling at this moment, is that the revelation or it's not? I could hear the revelation if I were only, how about this? How about the revelation being just what is? It's the monk who, when the girl in the village has, gets pregnant and she accuses, and she's hiding, covering for the fishermen, so she says it was the monk up on the hill. So when the baby's born, they take the baby up and they knock at the gate and the monk comes and they say, it's your baby, you raise it. Surprised to the monk, he says, ah, so. Takes the baby and closes the gate. Nine years later, the girl is dying and she doesn't want to die without con confessing and she says it wasn't the monk, it was the fisherman that impregnated me. So the villagers all go up and they knock on the gate and the monk comes with a nine-year-old kid and they say, it isn't your child, we'll now help raise it. And he says, ah, so. Can you do that? Is there a part of you that can ah, so your way through life? I mean, try it when it gets interesting. Sorry to tell you, you have cancer. Ah, so. Your bank just failed. Ah, so. You just won a million dollars. Ah, so. You're, we highly respect you. Aha, uh -huh, so. You are the stupidest, most irresponsible person I've ever met. Ah, so. Can you just appreciate the phenomena of life without reacting? Or allow the moment between the input and the react, the response to just be with it. Be with what is. Be with what is. With full acknowledgement of what is. Full allowing. It's interesting that you go out in the woods and you really appreciate trees. 
If it's a gnarled oak, you say, oh, a gnarled oak. If it's a scrawny pine, you say, ah, a scrawny pine. But look what happens when you look at human. You don't say, a real neurotic. <laughs> wow, a pathological liar. I haven't seen one of those in years. My goodness, a, a real child abuser. What a fascinating. See, I'm pushing the edge now. Watch, see? <laughs> see, I know how to get you. I know how to get you. Now, I don't mean that you let the child abuser abuse children. I'm not, you know. But you're so busy being righteous that you're not even here. You're busy in reactive mode. So you're not even hearing what is. Slow down a little bit and just appreciate what is, and then make a response. Your response will be much more what Aikido and Judo teach, how to make a response that uses the situation absolutely appropriately to bring about a deeper harmony in the universe. So for this, you cultivate... I'll finish the sequence in a second and then take a question. For this, you cultivate the witness, the part of you that is just noticing what is. The later stage of that process that takes you into the transcendent state, none of that's transcended yet. That's all horizontal. It's using one part of the mind to observe the other part of the mind. Then the final stage of that is through meditation, you get quiet enough so the witness witnesses itself. You witness the witness witnessing. And if the mind is disciplined enough, instead of an infinite regression, it flips through and you go into what's called choiceless awareness, which is an altered state of consciousness, which is the base from, it's like the sky against which the clouds of thought are coming and going. It's the, it's the ground. It's who you are when you finish being who you think you are. It's choiceless awareness. It's presence. It's the samadhi state. And then you're not witnessing anymore because you're not knowing it as object. You are just being everything in absolute quietness. And then out of that comes action. So these are all stages of using the mind to get into the mind, to see through it, to get yourself free of identification with it in order to become to go into choiceless awareness or spaciousness. Use context, shift context, use the witness. And to the extent that you can work with suffering, most of your life is fear motivated to protect you as a separate entity and it's designed to avoid the presence of suffering which is threatening to you and to avoid the potential of death, which is your own annihilation. And when you can look suffering in the eye and death in the eye, you're free. And you can do that the minute you find that part of you which is not suffering and does not die. Then you've got to, got to balance for that part of you which does suffer and does die. Then you have something to offer other people. Then you become a healer. Because you heal people out of the illusion that their suffering is the only reality.
interesting work. Interesting work. This podcast is brought to you by the Love Serve Remember Foundation and Ramdas.org. We appreciate you listening and we appreciate all the support that you've given us. Please continue that support and donate at Ramdas.org. We can then continue to share what Ramdas has been sharing for all of these years. Thank you.